Speaking of Mississippi is produced by the Mississippi Department of Archives and History and made possible by the John and Lucy Shackelford Charitable Fund of the Community Foundation for Mississippi. Mississippi has produced more than its share of history makers in the arts, in business, and in academics. One such scholar is Eddie Glaude, Jr., who chairs the Department of African American Studies at Princeton University and whose new book, Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own, is a New York Times bestseller. Welcome to Speaking of Mississippi, where we explore the landmark moments and overlooked stories of our state's history. I'm Chris Goodwin. On this episode, we feature a conversation between Eddie Glaude Jr. and Pamela D.C. Jr., director of the Museum of Mississippi History and Mississippi Civil Rights Museum. Their discussion ranges from Glaude's early years in Moss Point to his experiences as a national commentator and his pursuit to understand the author and activist James Baldwin. What a wonderful time for us to be interviewing Dr. Eddie Glaude. Thank you so much for being here. It is my pleasure. I'm so excited to talk with you. That's wonderful. You know, we see you on MSNBC. We see you on CNN and all of these news outlets. Tell our listening audience, who is Eddie Glaude Jr. from Moss Point, Mississippi? Oh, now you start off with the hardest question imaginable, (laughs) you know. Uh, let me just say up front, I'm, I'm, I no longer appear on CNN. I'm contractually bound to be on MSNBC. Okay. Who, is, who is Eddie Glaude? Uh, I'm a country boy from the Gulf Coast uh, who fell in love with the life of the mind, with ideas, who felt a sense of calling from the earliest of my memories. Uh, and that translated in terms of um, really trying to speak to questions of justice and racial equality uh, more broadly. I'm a Morehouse man. Mm. That what my mother and father put in me on the coast of Mississippi, Morehouse nurtured uh, and convicted me in some ways to do the work that I do. Um, And lastly, I would say, I'm a vulnerable little boy who has deep daddy issues, uh, who's trying his best uh, to become the man that I hope uh, that man um, wished me to become. So, you know, so, you know, we always complicate it. You know, we tell these easy stories about who we are when in fact it's, um, uh, uh, in fact, the voice that I have emerges out of a sense of brokenness and wound uh, that I'm constantly grappling with. And I think if we're more explicit in that, uh, as persons who have platforms, we can we can be even better models for mm-hmm. other folks, if that makes sense. Yeah. It does. It does. You know, on yesterday, I kept thinking about Moss Point, Mississippi, and I have a friend who was a teacher there. So I texted her and asked, did you teach <laughs> Dr. Eddie Glaude? And she said, Pat Davis did. Wow. I haven't heard that name in a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she told me that she would tell her that I was I would be interviewing you today. So I just wanted to make sure I said the name Pat Davis. That's amazing. That's great. Yeah, I just had a I had a former teacher of mine 
send me out of the blue. She's now in Arizona. She was she wasn't a teacher. She worked in the administration. Out of the blue, she sent me all of these clippings, these newspaper clippings that she kept uh, uh, about me wow. over all of these years. And it was, she worked in administration. I would see her passingly. And she just wanted to let me know that she was proud of me. And, mm. you know, it was just this amazing moment, you know, amazing moment of affirmation from uh, a, a person who was a part of the school uh, that that made me who I am in part. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, that brought to mind a lot of times people when I'm walking around, I could be in a grocery store and somebody will just come up to me and say, oh, we're so proud of you. We're so proud of you. How do you hold that on your shoulders? It's the most meaningful compliment that that I that I get. You know, I I I I hear from folks all the time about my work, uh, about how my scholarship has informed uh, their their scholarship. But those those moments, um, especially at home, when people tell me how proud they are, it means that I'm I'm, I'm doing something right. That that I'm exhibiting something. Uh, in my words and deeds that confirm the values that shape our community. Um, it, it also lets me know that, that this is not a selfish enterprise, that it's not about um, kind of promoting my own individual brand. It's not about uh, just me running my mouth for the sake of running my mouth, even though I could do that. Um, it's really about, right, uh, representing a community that makes me possible, a community for whom and to whom, uh, for whom I care most, uh, I care deeply, and to whom I am extraordinarily indebted. And so, when I hear from uh, older women, "Oh, I'm so proud of you! I watch you on that MSNBC, and look at you fighting with Joe Scarborough," you know, or you know, what I like about you, Eddie, is that you speak your mind, and you don't care what folks think. Um, and, and when I hear those sorts of comments, um, I carry them in my heart and it becomes a kind of reminder, a reminder of, of, of what is the moral center of gravity for me, why I'm doing it all in the first place, if that makes sense. And I'm not trying to be sentimental about it. I'm just, when you get that kind of affirmation, cause people will turn on you in a minute because, oh, yes. you know, just a couple of years ago. <laughs> I was getting a lot of heat and now I'm getting a lot of love, but that it, still, when I hear I'm proud of you, it's, it, it's, it goes straight to the heart. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, it's just something about people from the root, from the soil and they're coming up to you and telling you, baby, I'm so proud of you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know uh, when reading this amazing book, begin again, I kept thinking about the word freedom. Mm-hmm. What does freedom mean to you, Dr. Glide? It's such a hard um, thing to say. Freedom isn't an end, it's a practice. Mm-hmm. Right. So oftentimes we think of freedom as something that you achieve. Freedom as, as you know, being able to do whatever you want, kind of uh, negative freedom in that sense, right? Freedom as liberty uh, from constraint. Um, some people want to talk about liberty in, in this positive sense or freedom in this positive sense, right? As a kind of broad uh, construction around community and one's obligation to others. 
Um, but to my mind, freedom isn't an end, it's a practice. And, and, and so what does it mean to have this sense of, of calling, this sense of purpose at the heart of one's life that drives how you navigate space and time? That isn't kind of contained by material aspiration, but really about the fullness of a life imagined and lived, right? There's a sense in which as, a, as an African-American, as a black man in the United States, one aspect of my idea of freedom is what does it mean to be able to habit, inhabit space and time in the fullness of who I am and who I can be mm-hmm. without the constraints of a society that says that she lacks something or the constraints of a society that declares me invisible. What does it mean for me to, to make life swing, right? Duke Ellington style. Mm-hmm. That is not an end. It's not about law. It's not about juridical considerations solely. It's not about, you know, ending apartheid in the South. It's not about, right, dealing with structural inequality. It's about a certain existential and ontological, moral way of being in the world, that this is who I am. And that's never settled. Mm-hmm. That's ongoing. Mm-hmm. And, and so what does it mean for Black people to possess that kind of freedom? You see, yeah. That's, yeah. that's very different than just, <laughs> you, know, you know, the promised land is electing a Black person to the highest office in the land. No, that's not freedom. Mm-hmm. Freedom is something much more robust and meaningful, it seems to me. Do we ever achieve it? as black folks do we ever achieve it as human beings Mm. in some ways freedom is a regulative ideal towards which we aspire but never achieve Mm -hmm. it guides our way in which we live in the world it's like it's like uh any practice once you stop doing it you're gonna lose it Mm. right once you stop once once you stop putting up 500 shots uh you know at some point you're going to lose the rhythm and you're not going to be able to knock down those jumpers like you used to. Mm. Right. So until we take our last breath, as Cornell would say, Cornell West would say, until we become the culinary delights of terrestrial worms, we're going to practice freedom. We're going to practice what it means. And one of the ways in which one could think about it, Sister Pam, is I like to think of my life as, as you know, coming from this small town on the coast, uh, uh, as as I like to think of my life as a canvas upon which to create art, right? And so the art of living is is part of this possession of what it means to practice freedom, you know, uh, and to create as beautiful art as I as you know as as beautiful art as I can create over the life lived until I take that last breath, which is the momentous breath that guides the current breathing that I'm engaged in right now, right? So you know what I mean. From yeah. womb to tomb, what does it mean to be free? Yeah. Is a question that animates my life. Wow. Wow. James Baldwin, this prolific writer, this hero, if I might add, who who is he and how was it that you connected so strongly with him? You know, I don't say was because for me, he's he's so prevalent in today's world. That is not who was he, but who is he? Yeah, you know, I mean, I've been trying I've been trying to understand that. In some ways begin again is my effort to to excavate, to examine that question. Um because he's been so important to me as an intellectual resource uh as and as a moral resource. So, you know, here's this 
uh, young uh, black gay man growing up in Harlem in the ghetto, struggling with putting food on the table. He knows intimately what hunger is. Um, He's effeminate, so he's bearing the brunt of a hyper-masculine society. He has this abusive father, both psychologically and, I think, physically. Has these stories dancing around in his head that he's trying to put on the page, right? Sensitive to the world in ways that that artists are. And, you know, he does something unimaginable. He just takes the leap and decides to leave to go to France and create himself, engage in that arduous task of self-creation and wills himself into becoming one of the, the world's greatest writers. And he's in some ways, Sister Pam, an inheritor of, of Ralph Waldo Emerson's legacy. Emerson is constantly thinking about this American experiment, trying to figure out how might we shake loose from, uh, you know, the shackles of a Europe uh, that 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 in some ways constrains our imaginations. And Emerson is writing in the American Scholar and Self Reliance and in Fate and all of those extraordinary essays. How we might imagine ourselves as a nation anew. Well, Baldwin grabs Emerson by the collar and takes him across the proverbial tracks. So the Emersonian picture has to take has to take shape in the context of, you know, these two warring souls, as Du Bois would describe it, right? What does it mean to imagine oneself in the grandness of terms, right? You know, uh, uh, in, in, in the alleyways of Harlem, in the midst of junkies and prostitutes, and in the context of a society that says that you're less than. So who Baldwin is, is this amazing artist who sees who sees through, who pierces through the ideology of the American experiment, who taps the root, as it were. And for me, he taught me how to love and to be angry. Right? Because his rage lights the kiln, as I write in the book. Because here I am growing up on the coast of Mississippi and having to endure my father's rage, who didn't suffer white people easily, and he had reason not to. And there's an anger that's in him still that isn't reducible to white supremacy, but it's, also, it's shaped by it. And I was raised in that, you know? And so it's, it's in that context where um, Baldwin allowed me to be angry, but to understand how the anger could eat me up, yeah. how it could take root in my soul and make me monstrous. And so he says over and over again that we have to engage in that, that, that hard work of self-examination to understand the interior self so that we can become better people. And that work is what the nation needs to do. So there's always this kind of parallel movement going on and we need to engage in this ongoing self-interrogation as a precondition, right? For the nation to be otherwise so for me he's this he's this extraordinary resource and you know and he's this little dude he's comes out what giovanni's room is published in 1956 he comes out in 1956 so he's all by himself and sister pam the courage you know even as wounded as he was the courage it took is such an example for me 
you know, because Baldwin didn't win the Nobel. He didn't get the National Book Award. He didn't win all of the accolades that he should have because he told the truth. Yeah. It bore witness no matter what. And for me, that's the model, right? That's the model. So today they might love you. Tomorrow they might not like you. Only thing you need to do as an artist and as a writer is tell the truth and then tell more of them. Yeah. As much as we can bear, as we put it. Wow. And then more. Wow. Well, I was thinking then that it is the most wounded people who has the most prolific writings that that that's it's, it can just go so deep. You know, when I, I was I was looking and researching the last couple of weeks and I went back to something that's really important to me. My mentor interviewed James Baldwin back in the 70s for Mississippi Public Broadcast and it's on YouTube. You only get about eight minutes of it, but she asked him to describe his writing. So I'm going to ask you. Describe your writing for me. Oh, wow. 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 Tortured. Mm. Seeking. Um, vulnerable. Um, maturing. Risky. You know. I'm trying to resist sentences because, you know, it's only to recent, only re until recently that I, that I actually imagined myself as a writer in the thick sense of that word. You know, I've published all of these academic books, um, you know, was president of the American Academy of Religion, um, shaped in some ways the field of African-American religious studies. Um, but I never risked myself on the page in a certain way, although it was always underneath some things. And it wasn't until I, I wrote Democracy in Black, which was my first trade book. And it, it came about that because I wrote um, this, this popular piece entitled The Black Church is Dead, which caused all kinds of trouble. Um, and so I got this trade book deal and I decided uh, I was pushed to, to actually try to, 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 to do what I think to actually put on the page who I think I am. And then the Begin Again book just cracked me wide open. Baldwin insisted, he insisted that, he said, we're going to do this together, old boy. Mm -hmm. I've said this in interviews over and over again. He said to me, if we're going to do this together, old boy, you're going to have to, you have to deal with you, you know? Mm -hmm. And so the sentences changed. Um, the risk on the page changed, you know? Um, and so I think as a writer, I'm a Mississippi writer yeah. in this sense, right? Because the silences are as loud as what's on the page, you know, uh, as, as W. Ralph Eubank says, you know, this, the silence in Mississippi writers is as important, as important as what's on the page, you know? And so what I'm not saying underneath a sentence, what I'm grappling with, right? in the white spaces, to, to echo Kiesi Lehman, as he talked about, uh, you know, Natasha Traithaway's poetry, right? Um, though though it, it, it shapes everything. It shapes my sound, my aesthetic. Um, there's, a, there's, there's this kind of coastal um, rhythm that you, that you can feel in Jessamyn Ward's writing. I'm aspiring for that on my on the page, right? I want to get that funk of the porky plant, the mm -hmm. paper mill, 
right? I want to get, you know, the heat of, of the south, uh, you know, of, of the coast with that water coming, the wind coming off the water, that humidity that sticks to you, right? I'm trying to get that on the page. But it, it you know, I'm 50, I'll be 54 on September 4th. And, you know, relatively young man, I suppose. Ha, not anymore. Um, <laughs> But it's in that it's in that context that I'm actually trying to create myself anew. Remember, freedom is a practice. Yes. So here I am in this moment, you know, daring to actually be what's been running around in my head for for as long as I can remember. Remember. Yeah, that's awesome. Why was it important to write this book? I had to bring him on stage. You know, I'm I'm looking at the world as it was, as it is, and I remember. Jimmy, you know, screaming at the top of his lungs as the age of Reagan was ascending. And I mean, look, he, A. Reagan is elected in 1980. Baldwin dies seven years later. He knew Reagan from, from California. He witnessed what Reagan as a governor had done. And, you know, people weren't, people weren't interested in listening to him anymore. It was almost as if they were more interested in in the kind of sweater that Bill Cosby was wearing as opposed to what Jimmy was saying, you know? And so No Name in the Street has been this puzzle for me. It's written in 1972. He peeps what's coming. He sees the Safe Streets Act. He knows Reagan is, Reaganism is on the ascendance, you know? And so I had resources. Now, Baldwin had already been shaping my academic work the way in which I was reading American pragmatism, how I was differentiating myself from Cornell West in, in certain ways. Baldwin was everywhere in my work. Um, a book, my book, In a Shade of Blue, Pragmatism and the Politics of Black America, Baldwin quotes are at the top of every chapter except for the last one, which has Toni Morrison, which of course is an echo of, of Baldwin in that sense. So I said, and then in, in, in Democracy in Black, he's everywhere without you know, explicit citation. So I said, it's time to bring him on stage. He's going to help me think through this moment because I'm losing it. Right. I made a mistake in democracy and black. I should, as a lifelong reader of Baldwin, I should have known that these people were going to vomit up Trump. I should have known it, that it, this was a real threat. And I thought we were at, that this was an impossibility. Um, and now the book I'm working on now is, is really um, taking not so much the lie as its central as a central trope, but the madness that I'm grappling with, right? That this country can literally drive one to the brink of a kind of madness where you lose your footing. So Baldwin had had to be the resource. He had I had to walk with him to break through uh, what I was feeling, so that I could become an even more um, genuine voice in the moment if that makes sense. Yes. So I had to. I had to. And Lord, I almost didn't survive. Mm. Wow. Wow. Sometimes when you speak, I have to sit in it for a moment. So give me a moment (laughs) when I'm sitting in it. You know, when you write about James Baldwin amid the civil rights movement, he witnesses the cruelty, the terror, the viciousness, the vitriol of how Black people were treated for wanting freedom. In your book, Begin Again, you speak about the lie that James talks about. Explain the lie and how the lie is still as dominant as it was yesteryears. Right. 
this lie is this kind of broad architecture of 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 myth and myths and fantasy and false assumptions about who we are as a nation, right? A kind of uh, account of 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 our evils and horrors that displaces them onto those who bore the burden and bear the burden of our doings and sufferings, which is a, just a technical way of talking about experience. So the lie is this kind of account of ourselves that absolves us of our sins and maintains our innocence as a nation. And it's, it's a complex architecture. It has everything to do in the story of American exceptionalism. It has everything to do with how we account for um, the current conditions of Black folk, how we account for uh, class divisions, how we account for uh, um, America's war machine. I mean, we could the story we tell ourselves in order to maintain this particular idea of the United States as the redeemer nation. And that lie, right, Baldwin says, you know, I'm paraphrasing him here. He says, you know, uh, the folk who came here uh, uh, came here to found democracy, but they had chattel. They had these slaves and they had to figure out what to do with that. And so they had to say that these people were not human beings in order to justify their actions. Because if they were not human beings, Baldwin says, then no crime would have been committed. And then he says, that lie is the basis of our current trouble. That lie is the basis of our current trouble. So we tell a story to, to release ourselves, the nation that is, from the burden and responsibility of what we've done. Right. And and that has ramifications across generations. And the question that I keep asking myself is, what does it mean? Right. To live in a lie since one's inception. Mm -hmm. right? What does it mean? Right. And it's almost, you know, and I think, you know, Mississippi is for me a central metaphor for this. Right. Because it's that that contradiction that defines the state. What happens in the, on the cover of night? What happens in the broad daylight? The state that produced the most powerful writers the country has ever written. I mean, think about it. The art, the music. I mean, there's nothing, no one comes close to, to, to our state. And then it's one of the bloodiest, cruel places. It's like, it's like, um, it's like uh, the environment. It's so beautiful and gorgeous, but then you got you know black races that can chase you down the street. Mm. You know snakes that'll do you in, right? I mean, I mean, you know, it's it's this contradiction that's at the heart of who we are. You know, and so that's the lie that I try to um, I try to think through. Uh, and now you know, I think I've I've had an impact because that language has entered into the popular discourse, right? They describe Donald Trump's big lie, but we've had an impact in terms of just uh, getting people to describe, you know, the circumstances differently, I think. Yeah. Wow. In the book, you speak of a resurgence of Baldwin's quotes and writings during Obama's presidency. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, I mean, I think the young folk, particularly those who were uh, a part of Black Lives Matter, they were they were engaged in a kind of extraordinary uh, effort in light of all of this video footage of 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 black death 
I mean, that was just overwhelming us, you know? Um, and these young black queer men and women uh, who were trying to imagine a kind of participatory democratic approach to organizing a movement that wasn't led by some preacher, some man at the front of the march. You know about this stuff there, right? It was a different, <laughs> it, it had a, it had an ethos of SNCC. It had an ethos of Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. It was, and part of what they were trying to do as these queer young black men who were often at the front uh, in risking their lives, um, they were trying to find resources to account for what they were doing. And it's almost as if we were catching up with Jimmy. And so you saw Baldwin's quotes everywhere, images everywhere, as they were trying to voice um, you know, their concerns around criminal justice reform and police brutality and whatnot. So I think it was, it's a matter, it was a matter of Baldwin's account of the country, right, uh, was particularly relevant. Because remember, at the end of his last book, published in 1985, The Evidence of Things Not Seen, is about the Atlanta child murder. And at the heart of that book, which most people don't read anymore, many critics hated, at least in the United States they did, is this question. What do we do with Black suffering when Black people hold the reins of power? These babies are being murdered in Atlanta with Maynard Jackson, the mayor, Black chief of police. And here we have the president of the United States, a Black man, and these police are still slaughtered. Makes sense that they would reach for Jimmy at that moment. Wow. When James Baldwin was so, he wanted to be a part of the movement and and he came to Mississippi and and he got with this amazing gentleman, Mega (laughs) Wiley Evers. Talk to us about their friendship and what he wanted to gain from Mega and how how Mega's death surrounded him, how it was a part of him. Oh, my goodness. Um, You know, Baldwin writes about that experience. He talks about it. And uh, Mecker was uh, a larger-than-life figure in his life, right? Um, And, you know, Baldwin always had these encounters where these these persons would become, in some some ways, in his art, on the page, kind of father-like figures. And so he was just marveling at the courage of Mecker Evans. Because this is Mississippi, this is the bowels of the South. And what he was doing, driving in those back roads, in the, on those back roads, in those backwoods, and, and, and really risking everything to organize on behalf of, of Black folk, you know? There's a, there's a wonderful essay, uh, Nothing Personal. This is 690, it's uh, in, in this edited volume, uh, collected essays that, Bald, that, that Toni Morrison um, uh, edit and uh, edit it. And there's this moment at the end, in some ways, you have to read the essay as in part a eulogy to Medgar Evans. There's the last line, there's this last line, and I have to read it if you don't, if you don't mind. Please, please, please do. Because, you know, he's in, he's, he's in Puerto Rico when he's finishing this essay, because this is the essay that goes with the book of photos with Richard Avenden. And Richard's been trying to get these essays out of him. And he, so he just decides he's going to go and he's going to write this, this, this piece. And it was written in 1964. And he's flown his family, his mother there and everyone there. And they're reading excerpts from Blues, Mr. Charlie and all this other stuff. But there's this moment. It's 
is for nothing is fixed forever and forever and forever. It is not fixed. The earth is always shifting. The light is always changing. The sea does not cease to grind down rock. Generations do not cease to be born, and we are responsible to them because we are the only witnesses they have. The sea rises, the light falls, the light fails. Lovers cling to each other, and children cling to us. The moment we cease to hold each other, the moment we break faith with one another, the sea engulfs us and the light goes out. He writes that this particular piece when he finds out that Mega has been assassinated. So nothing personal as an essay is not only a kind of treatment of the power of love because he has family with him in Puerto Rico celebrating birthdays and reading blues, but it's also right a treatment to speak to the love because he finds out that Mecker is assassinated as he's driving with his lover, Lucian, down a highway, right? And so I think there's something about the courage of Mecker Evers. There's something about his witness. There's something about the love he had for his family that spoke to Baldwin. There's something about what he showed him, right? That Baldwin, for a moment, was able to see the South through Mecker's eyes. And he tried to translate that on the page. And then they, they took him. Because remember, there are three figures that, are, that haunt Baldwin in the latter part of his life. And they organize, no name in the street. Those same figures organized the autobiography that he could never write. The murder of, of Medgar, the murder of Malcolm, and the murder of Mark. Those three murders are the, you know, the, the, the three legs to the latter part of Baldwin's nonfiction career. When I told others about this interview, one person wanted me to take you back to the day you visited James Baldwin's grave. <laughs> and, and, and we were talking about this yesterday, and, and, and I called the guys that were out there at the cemetery Corner Boys. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah but absolutely. Talk about how you felt walking on the grounds and finally finding the gravesite. It was, it was, it's one of those sacred moments in my life, right? It was so profoundly spiritually transformational. Um, in the sense that, you know, we were lost. I was with Carol Weinstein, who was uh, the girlfriend, of the partner of, of David Baldwin for a while, Baldwin's brother. And so she drove up with me and she thought she knew exactly where the grave site was. And she was, you know, she's getting up in age. And so she missed, she misremembered. So we were walking around and I was just taking it in because I knew Malcolm was there. I knew so many of our ancestors were in this, this sprawling um, cemetery, sprawling. It's, it, it mimics New York in so many ways, right? And uh, she didn't want to ask, but I rolled down the window and asked. And I mean, the weed was strong. It just rolled into the way. I mean, it was strong. And and the thing that, that was so fascinating is, that, like I said in the book, they were pointing to where you might be over there near Malcolm, you might be over there, such and such. And when Baldwin was right behind them, I just remember saying to myself, I didn't write this in the book, but I just remember saying, I'll be damned. <laughs> okay, Jimmy, I see you. I see you. And it's, you know, it's not a, 
elaborate grave site. It's you know, it's it's modest figures, you know. His mama Burtis is right there next to his mom. And um and I just and I just I just man, wow. And I just said, okay, trust me. Trust me to get it right. But I see what you're saying. We gotta end with these folks. Because it's about them. Trust me. Trust me. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I keep saying it to myself too. Trust me. Yeah. <laughs> Trust me. Trust me. On page 18 of your introduction of Begin Again, you talk about how David, James Baldwin's brother, your words pow- powerfully recounted Jimmy's summation of his life. His quote begins, I pray I've done my work mm-hmm. when I've gone from here and all the turmoil through the wreckage and the rubble and through whatever. When someone finds themselves digging through these ruins, I pray that somewhere in the wreckage they'll find me. Somewhere in that wreckage that they use something I've left behind, end quote. And you say, I quote, I started digging and began again is what I found. Yeah, man. That's, if anyone gets a chance to watch, you can find it on, on YouTube, uh, the documentary, The Price of the Ticket. Mm. All the tunes you're coming in with yeah. the drums and that last line. Just hearing you read it, Sister Pam, just gave me chill bumps, man. Mm. Um, yeah, it, it was there. Because, you know, I've been teaching Baldwin. I taught a seminar on Emerson and Baldwin, taught a seminar on Baldwin's nonfiction. I've been teaching in, in a graduate course on at the African-American intellectual tradition. And, you know, we would teach, um, I would have them read uh, The Fire Next Time and No Name in the Street. And always, I was always puzzled by the way in which people didn't see No Name in the Street as a classic, as this powerful book. You know, I remember when I went to interview Michael Thelwell, who wrote The Harder They Come and who co-authored um, Kwame Ture Stokely Carmichael's uh, autobiography. He's like, ah, Baldwin, that book is, that book is a mess. Right? That's how he responded to it, right? And I knew that wasn't true. And so I just started digging. And, you know, um, and there it just kept coming to me. Just pieces just kept coming together. So you give you one story. I'm, I'm walking down, Carol gave me, Carol Weinstein gave me some papers and there was supposed to be a, a, a typed, um, manuscript of an early version of the essay, the price of the ticket, which was the introduction to the edited volume, right? So I'm walking down Princeton. I'm going to, it's lunchtime. I eat at exactly 12 o'clock every single day during, mm-hmm. during the week. So I'm going to get my sandwich. And I have this, I'm, I'm going to read this again, because you might find some interesting differences, right, in the original document and the eventual uh, piece that was published. So I start reading it, Pam, and it's not that essay. <laughs> it's a completely different essay that I had never seen before. But it has the title, The Price of the Ticket. And it's Baldwin, it's Baldwin at his modernist best. I mean, there's fracture, there's fragmentation. All of this stuff is happening. There's this riff on sincerity that just blew my mind. And I was, I I think I almost got hit because I'm just walking down the street like, oh my God, because this was happening to me the entire time I was digging. And, you know, then Reverend Barber, Bishop Barber sent me a Baldwin Saints camp. And this one is what I burned the entire time I was writing because he was there. So I just, you know, 
what I found was 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 the answer to this mandate. Explain my voice when I lost it. Mm-hmm. Explain the voice at the end of my life. Show the continuity between what I was grappling with in Notes of a Native Son and what I was grappling with in the evidence of things not seen. Don't involve, don't engage in this then and now narrative, this declension story. Tell the story about why my voice sounded the way it sounded at the end. And, and, I, and I, I, tried to, I tried to be true to that. At the same time, I know I'm talking a lot here, but at the same time, I was trying to be myself because I didn't want Jimmy to run over me. Because the book is not about him. It's me writing with him. So I had to do these several, I had to invent a method, a form rather, a form that I could do all of these things at this, right on different levels at the same time. And so, yeah, so that's, that's what I found, man. I found me too. So. You found you. Okay. And that's, that's what you needed to find. That's yes. why you wrote the book. You know, yes, I, when we think about, I was thinking about, you know, him saying, finding himself in this wreckage and we all have footprints that we we must leave and hopefully somebody will see those footprints and journey and take that same journey or take a better journey and that's what you did to be able to explain who we are mm-hmm. and my last question okay. uh, with all this happening around us today this new movement of the 21st century give us some parting words that we can use as a footprint to continue to move. Oh, wow. Wow. You know, we're in the midst of, first of all, thank you so much for this conversation. I mean, Mm -hmm. from the first question to the last, my Lord, you've had me on my heels. Um, um, We have to acknowledge that we are experiencing in real time a betrayal again. You know, history haunts this country. The echoes of the collapse of radical reconstruction are loud in this moment. They don't want to tell the truth about who we are. People don't want to confront the truth of who we are on the page. Um, Democracy, as it has always been, stands on in this place, stands on a knife's edge. Right? I mean, we know intimately that this place hasn't been a truly multiracial democracy since 1965, (laughs) right? But some people believe that it's always been that. We know that's not true. So there's a kind of, you know, the fever dreams have spiked again. Whenever the contradiction comes into view between who we say we are and who we actually are, and the madness that 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 emerges as a result of the contradiction expressing itself, we're living in the midst of it right now. And so, and in each moment, then and now, we face a moral choice. A moral choice of who we're going to be. Who will we be? And so, don't stick one's head, don't stick your head in the sand. Confront the ugliness for what it is. 
and make a choice. And the choice is clear. Either you're going to be monstrous still, or you're going to imagine this place differently. There's nothing in between. (laughs) Yeah, nothing in between. Nothing in between. Nothing in between. You are this amazing person, Dr. Glad, and uh, your Mississippi roots shine brightly. Continue to share your light with the masses, sir. Continue. And we are proud of you. Oh, my God. Smiling like a chess cat. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Speaking of Mississippi is a joint production of the Mississippi Department of Archives and History and the Community Foundation for Mississippi. Our opening music comes from a 1942 recording by Sid Hempel, the most storied black musician in the Mississippi Hills in the early 20th century. Our closing music was recorded in 1939 by Tishomingo County fiddler John Hatcher and included on the 1985 Mississippi Department of Archives and History release, Great Big Yam Potatoes. I'm Chris Goodwin, and thank you for listening to Speaking of Mississippi. <laughs>